Part One of the Portrait. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Red Abrus. The Open Door and the Portrait. Stories of the Seen and Unseen by Margaret O. Oliphant. The Portrait Part 1 At the period when the following incidents occurred, I was living with my father at the Grove, a large old house in the immediate neighborhood of a little town. This had been his home for a number of years, and I believe I was born in it. It was a kind of house which, notwithstanding all the red and white architecture known at present by the name of Queen Anne, Builders nowadays have forgotten how to build. It was straggling and irregular, with wide passages, wide staircases, broad landings, the rooms large but not very lofty, the arrangements leaving much to be desired, with no economy of space, a house belonging to a period when land was cheap, and so far as that was concerned, there was no occasion to economize. Though it was so near the town, the clump of trees in which it was environed was a veritable grove. In the grounds in spring, the primroses grew as thickly as in the forest. We had a few fields for the cows and an excellent walled garden. The place is being pulled down at this moment to make room for more streets of mean little houses, the kind of thing, and not a dull house of faded gentry which perhaps the neighborhood requires. The house was dull, and so were we, its last inhabitants, and the furniture was faded, even a little dingy. Nothing to brag of. I do not, however, intend to convey a suggestion that we were faded gentry, for that was not the case. My father, indeed, was rich, and had no need to spare any expense in making his life and his house bright if he pleased. But he did not please and I had not been long enough at home to exercise any special influence of my own. It was the only home I had ever known, but except in my earliest childhood and in my holidays as a schoolboy, I had in reality known but little of it. My mother had died at my birth, or shortly after, and I had grown up in the gravity and silence of a house without women. In my infancy, I believe, a sister of my father's had lived with us and taken charge of the household and of me. But she, too, had died long, long ago, my mourning for her being one of the first things I could recollect. And she had no successor. There were indeed a housekeeper and some maids, the latter of whom I only saw disappearing at the end of a passage or whisking out of a room when one of the gentlemen appeared. Mrs. Ware, indeed, I saw nearly every day, but a curtsy, a smile, a pair of nice round arms which she caressed while folding them across her ample waist, and a large white apron were all I knew of her. This was the only female influence in the house. The drawing-room I was aware of only as a place of deadly good order, into which nobody ever entered. It had three long windows opening on the lawn and communicated at the upper end, which was rounded like a great bay, with the conservatory. 
Sometimes I gazed into it as a child from without, wondering at the needlework on the chairs, the screens, the looking-glasses which never reflected any living face. My father did not like the room, which probably was not wonderful, though it never occurred to me in those early days to inquire why. I may say here, though it will probably be disappointing to those who form a sentimental idea of the capabilities of children, that it did not occur to me either in these early days to make any inquiry about my mother. There was no room in life, as I knew it, for any such person. Nothing suggested to my mind either the fact that she must have existed, or that there was need of her in the house. I accepted, as I believe most children do, the facts of existence, on the basis with which I had first made acquaintance with them, without question or remark. As a matter of fact, I was aware that it was rather dull at home, but neither by comparison with the books I read, nor by the communications received from my schoolfellows, did this seem to me anything remarkable. And I was possibly somewhat dull too by nature, for I did not mind. I was fond of reading, and for that there was unbounded opportunity. I had a little ambition in respect to work, and that too could be prosecuted undisturbed. When I went to the university, my society lay almost entirely among men, but by that time and afterwards, matters had of course greatly changed with me, and though I recognized women as part of the economy of nature, and did not indeed by any means dislike or avoid them, yet the idea of connecting them at all with my own home never entered into my head. That continued to be as it had always been when at intervals I descended upon the cool, grave, colourless place, in the midst of my traffic with the world, always very still, well-ordered, serious, the cooking very good, the comfort perfect, old Morpheus, the butler, a little older, but very little older, perhaps on the whole less old, since in my childhood I had thought him a kind of metzula, and Mrs. Ware, less active, covering up her arms in sleeves, but folding and caressing them just as always. I remember looking in from the lawn through the windows upon that deadly orderly drawing room, with a humorous recollection of my childish admiration and wonder, and feeling that it must be kept so forever and ever, and that to go into it would break some sort of amusing mock mystery, some pleasantly ridiculous spell. But it was only at rare intervals that I went home, in the long vacation, as in my school holidays, my father often went abroad with me, so that we had gone over a great deal of the continent together very pleasantly. He was old in proportion to the age of his son, being a man of sixty when I was twenty, but that did not disturb the pleasure of the relations between us. I don't know that they were ever very confidential. On my side there was but little to communicate, for I did not get into scrapes, nor fall in love, the two predicaments which demand sympathy and confidences. And as for my father himself, I was never aware what there could be to communicate on his side. I knew his life exactly, what he did almost at every hour of the day, under what circumstances of the temperature he would ride and when walk, how often and with what guests he would indulge in the occasional break of a dinner party. A serious pleasure, perhaps indeed less a pleasure than a duty 
All this I knew as well as he did, and also his views on public matters, his political opinions, which naturally were different from mine. What ground then remained for confidence? I did not know any. We were both of us of a reserved nature, not apt to enter into our religious feelings, for instance. There are many people who think reticence on such subjects a sign of the most reverential way of contemplating them. Of this I am far from being sure, but at all events it was the practice most congenial to my own mind. And then I was for a long time absent, making my own way in the world. I did not make it very successfully. I accomplished the natural fate of an Englishman, and went out to the colonies, then to India in a semi-diplomatic position, but returned home after seven or eight years, invalided, in bad health, and not much better spirits, tired and disappointed with my first trial of life. I had, as people say, no occasion to insist on making my way. My father was rich and had never given me the slightest reason to believe that he did not intend me to be his heir. His allowance to me was not illiberal, and though he did not oppose the carrying out of my own plans, he by no means urged me to exertion. When I came home, he received me very affectionately and expressed his satisfaction in my return. Of course, he said, I am not glad that you are disappointed, Philip, or that your health is broken but otherwise it is an ill wind, you know, that blows nobody good, and I am very glad to have you at home. I am growing an old man. I don't see any difference, sir, said I. Everything here seems exactly the same as when I went away. He smiled and shook his head. It is true enough, he said. After we have reached a certain age, we seem to go on for a long time on a plane and feel no great difference from year to year but it is an inclined plane. And the longer we go on, the more sudden will be the fall at the end. But at all events, it will be a great comfort to me to have you here. If I had known that, I said, and that you wanted me, I should have come in any circumstances, as there are only two of us in the world. Yes, he said, there are only two of us in the world. But still, I should not have sent for you, Phil, to interrupt your career. It is as well, then, that it has interrupted itself, I said rather bitterly, for disappointment is hard to bear. He patted me on the shoulder and repeated, It is an ill wind that blows nobody good, with a look of real pleasure which gave me a certain gratification too, for after all he was an old man and the only one in all the world to whom I owed any duty. I had not been without dreams of warmer affections, but they had come to nothing, not tragically, but in the ordinary way. I might perhaps have had love which I did not want, but not that which I did want, which was not a thing to make any unmoanly moan about, but in the ordinary course of events. Such disappointments happen every day, indeed. They are more common than anything else, and sometimes it is apparent afterwards that it is better it was so. However, here I was at thirty stranded yet wanting for nothing in a position to call forth rather envy than pity from the greater part of my contemporaries for i had an assured and comfortable existence as much money as i wanted and the prospect of an excellent fortune for the future on the other hand my health was still low and i had no occupation 
The neighborhood of the town was a drawback rather than an advantage. I felt myself tempted, instead of taking the long walk into the country which my doctor recommended, to take a much shorter one through the high street, across the river, and back again, which was not a walk but a lounge. The country was silent and full of thoughts, thoughts not always very agreeable, whereas there were always the humors of the little urban population to glance at, the news to be heard, all those petty matters which so often make up life in a very impoverished version for the idle man. I did not like it, but I felt myself yielding to it, not having energy enough to make a stand. The rector and the leading lawyer of the place asked me to dinner. I might have glided into the society such as it was had I been disposed for that. Everything about me began to close over me as if I had been fifty and fully contented with my lot. It was possibly my own want of occupation which made me observe with surprise after a while how much occupied my father was. He had expressed himself glad of my return, but now that I had returned, I saw very little of him. Most of his time was spent in his library, as had always been the case, but on the few visits I paid him there, I could not but perceive that the aspect of the library was much changed. It had acquired the look of a business room, almost an office. There were large business-like books on the table, which I could not associate with anything he could naturally have to do, and his correspondence was very large. I thought he closed one of those books hurriedly as I came in and pushed it away as if he did not wish me to see it. This surprised me at the moment without arousing any other feeling, but afterwards I remembered it with a clearer sense of what it meant. He was more absorbed altogether than I had been used to see him. He was visited by men sometimes not of very prepossessing appearance, Surprise grew in my mind without any very distinct idea of the reason of it, and it was not till after a chance conversation with Morphew that my vague uneasiness began to take definite shape. It was begun without any special intention on my part. Morphew had informed me that Master was very busy on some occasion when I wanted to see him, and I was a little annoyed to be thus put off. It appears to me that my father is always busy, I said hastily. Morphew then began very oracularly to nod his head in assent. A deal too busy, sir, if you take my opinion, he said. This startled me much, and I asked hurriedly, what do you mean? Without reflecting that to ask for private information from a servant about my father's habits was as bad as investigating into a stranger's affairs. It did not strike me in the same light. Mr. Philip, said Morphew, a thing has happened as happens more often than it ought to. Master has got awful keen about money in his old age. That's a new thing for him, I said. No, sir, begging your pardon, it ain't a new thing. He was once broke of it, and that wasn't easy done, but it's come back, if you'll excuse me saying so. And I don't know as he'll ever be broke of it again at his age. I felt more disposed to be angry than disturbed by this. You must be making some ridiculous mistake, I said. And if you were not so old a friend as you are, Morphew, I should not have allowed my father to be so spoken of to me. The old man gave me a half-astonished, half-contemptuous look. He has been my master a deal longer than he has been your father, he said. 
turning on his heel. The assumption was so comical that my anger could not stand in face of it. I went out, having been on my way to the door when this conversation occurred, and took my usual lounge about, which was not a satisfactory sort of amusement. Its vanity and emptiness appeared to be more evident than usual today. I met half a dozen people I knew and had as many pieces of news confided to me. I went up and down the length of the high street, I made a small purchase or two, and then I returned homeward, despising myself, yet finding no alternative within my reach. Would a long country walk have been more virtuous? It would at least have been more wholesome, but that was all that could be said. My mind did not dwell on Morpheus's communication. It seemed without sense or meaning to me, and after the excellent joke about his superior interest in his master, to mine in my father, was dismissed lightly enough from my mind. I tried to invent some way of telling this to my father without letting him perceive that Morphew had been finding faults in him, or I listening, for it seemed a pity to lose so good a joke. However, as I returned home, something happened which put the joke entirely out of my head. It is curious when a new subject of trouble or anxiety has been suggested to the mind in an unexpected way, how often a second advertisement follows immediately after the first, and gives to that a potency which in itself it had not possessed. I was approaching our own door, wondering whether my father had gone and whether on my return I should find him at leisure, for I had several little things to say to him, when I noticed a poor woman lingering about the closed gates. She had a baby sleeping in her arms. It was a spring night, the stars shining in the twilight, and everything soft and dim, and the woman's figure was like a shadow, flitting about, now here, now there, on one side or another of the gate. She stopped when she saw me approaching, and hesitated for a moment, then seemed to take a sudden resolution. I watched her without knowing, with a prevision that she was going to address me though with no sort of idea as to the subject of her address. She came up to me doubtfully. It seemed, yet suddenly, as I felt, and when she was close to me, dropped a sort of hesitating curtsy and said, It's Mr. Philip, in a low voice. What do you want with me? I said. Then she poured forth suddenly, without warning or preparation her long speech, a flood of words which must have been all ready and waiting at the doors of her lips for utterance. Oh, sir, I want to speak to you. I can't believe you'll be so hard, for you're young, and I can't believe he'll be so hard if so be as his own son, as I have always heard he had but one. I'll speak up for us. Oh, gentlemen, it is easy for the likes of you that if you aren't comfortable in one room, can just walk into another. But if one room is all you have, and every bit of furniture you have taken out of it, and nothing but the four walls left, not so much as a cradle for the child or a chair for your man to sit down upon when he comes from his work, or a saucepan to cook him his supper. My good woman, I said, who can have taken all that from you? Surely nobody can be so cruel. You say it's cruel, she cried with a sort of triumph. Oh, I knowed you would, or any true gentleman that don't hold with screwing poor folks. Just go and say that to him inside there for the love of God. 
tell him to think what he's doing, driving poor creatures to despair. Summer's coming, the Lord be praised, but yet it's bitter cold at night with your counterpane gone, and when you have been working hard all day, and nothing but four bare walls to come home to, and all your poor little sticks of furniture that you have saved up for, and got together one by one, all gone, and you know better than when you started, or rather worse, for then you was young. Oh, sir, the woman's voice rose into a sort of passionate wail, and then she added, beseechingly, recovering herself, Oh, speak for us. He will not refuse his own son. To whom am I to speak? Who is it that has done this to you? I said. The woman hesitated again, looking keenly in my face, then repeated with a slight faltering, It's Mr. Philip, as if that made everything right. Yes, I am Philip Canning, I said, but what have I to do with this, and to whom am I to speak? She began to whimper, crying and stopping herself. Oh, please, sir, it's Mr. Canning as owns all the house property about. It's him that our court and the lane and everything belongs to, and he has taken the bed from under us and the baby's cradle, although it is said in the Bible as you are not to take poor folks' bed. My father? I cried in spite of myself. Then it must be some agent, someone else in his name. You may be sure he knows nothing of it. Of course I shall speak to him at once. Oh, God bless you, sir, said the woman. But then she added in a lower tone, It's no agent. It's one as never knows trouble. It's him that lives in that grand house. But this was said under her breath, evidently not for me to hear. Morpheus' words flashed through my mind as she spoke. What was this? Did it afford an explanation of the much-occupied hours, the big books, the strange visitors? I took the poor woman's name and gave her something to procure a few comforts for the night and went indoors disturbed and troubled. It was impossible to believe that my father himself would have acted thus, but he was not a man to brook interference, and I did not see how to introduce the subject what to say. I could but hope that at the moment of broaching it, words would be put into my mouth, which often happens in moments of necessity. One knows not how, even when one's theme is not so all-important as that for which such help has been promised. As usual, I did not see my father till dinner. I have said that our dinners were very good, luxurious in a simple way, everything excellent in its kind well cooked well served the perfection of comfort without show which is a combination very dear to the english heart i said nothing till morphew with his solemn attention to everything that was going had retired and then it was with some strain of courage that i began i was stopped outside the gate to-day by a curious sort of petitioner a poor woman who seems to be one of your tenants sir but whom your agent must have been rather too hard upon my agent who is that said my father quietly i don't know his name and i doubt his competence the poor creature seems to have had everything taken from her her bed her child's cradle no doubt she was behind with her rent very likely sir she seemed very poor said i you take it coolly said my father with an upward glance half amused not in the least shocked by my statement 
but when a man or a woman either takes a house i suppose you will allow that they ought to pay rent for it certainly sir i replied when they have got anything to pay i don't allow the reservation he said but he was not angry which i had feared he would be i think i continued that your agent must be too severe and this emboldens me to say something which has been in my mind for some time these were the words no doubt which i had hoped would be put into my mouth they were the suggestion of the moment and yet as i said them it was with the most complete conviction of their truth and that is this i am doing nothing my time hangs heavy on my hands make me your agent i'll see for myself and save you from such mistakes and it will be an occupation mistakes what warrant have you for saying these are mistakes he said testily then after a moment this is a strange proposal from you phil do you know what it is you are offering to be a collector of rents going about from door to door from week to week to look after wretched little bits of repairs drains etc to get paid which after all is the chief thing and not to be taken in by tales of poverty not to let you be taken in by men without pity i said he gave me a strange glance which i did not very well understand and said abruptly a thing which so far as i remember he had never in my life said before you have become a little like your mother phil my mother the reference was so unusual nay so unprecedented that i was greatly startled it seemed to me like the sudden introduction of a quite new element in the stagnant atmosphere as well as a new party to our conversation my father looked across the table as if with some astonishment at my tone of surprise is that so very extraordinary he said no of course it's not extraordinary that i should resemble my mother only i have heard very little of her almost nothing that is true he got up and placed himself before the fire which was very low as the night was not cold and had not been cold heretofore at least but it seemed to me now that a little chill came into the dim and faded room perhaps it looked more dull from the suggestion of a something brighter warmer that might have been talking of mistakes he said perhaps that was one to sever you entirely from her side of the house but i did not care for the connection you will understand how it is that i speak of it now when i tell you he stopped here however said nothing more for a minute or so and then rang the bell morphew came as he always did very deliberately so that some time elapsed in silence during which my surprise grew when the old man appeared at the door have you put the lights in the drawing room as i told you my father said yes sir and opened the box sir and it's a it's a speaking likeness this the old man got out in a great hurry as if afraid that his master would stop him my father did so with a wave of his hand that's enough i asked no information you can go now the door closed upon us and there was again a pause my subject had floated away altogether like a mist though i had been so concerned about it i tried to resume but could not something seemed to arrest my very breathing and yet in this dull respectable house of ours 
where everything breathed good character and integrity, it was certain that there could be no shameful mystery to debate. It was some time before my father spoke, not from any purpose that I could see, but apparently because his mind was busy with probably unaccustomed thoughts. You scarcely know the drawing-room, Phil, he said at last. Very little. I have never seen it used. I have a little awe of it, to tell the truth. That should not be. There is no reason for that. But a man by himself, as I have been for the greater part of my life, has no occasion for a drawing-room. I always, as a matter of preference, sat among my books. However, I ought to have thought of the impression on you. Oh, it is not important, I said. The always childish. I have not thought of it since I came home. It never was anything very splendid at the best, said he. He lifted the lamp from the table with a sort of abstraction, not remarking even my offer to take it from him, and led the way. He was on the verge of seventy, and looked his age, but it was a vigorous age, with no symptom of giving way. The circle of light from the lamp lit up his white hair and keen blue eyes and clear complexion. His forehead was like old ivory, his cheek warmly colored, an old man, yet a man in full strength. He was taller than I was, and still almost as strong. As he stood for a moment with the lamp in his hand, he looked like a tower in his great height and bulk. I reflected as I looked at him that I knew him intimately, more intimately than any other creature in the world. I was familiar with every detail of his outward life. Could it be that in reality I did not know him at all? End of Part 1 of the Portrait Recording by Red Abrus December 2007